my name is John, and uh, you know I came off the bench, and here I am. So um, I haven't even met all of you yet, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. So um, can't wait to to get to talk with you guys in the coming uh, weeks. All right. So today is Palm Sunday, and kids, you know what that means. Today is the day that Jesus came and, and made himself known as the King, the Messiah. It was really an exciting moment because there was, uh, Jesus rode in on a donkey and a colt, and people were waving palm branches before him, and they were shouting Hosanna, and it was a really exciting moment. People had looked forward to that for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was happening right before their eyes. And so it was a very exciting moment, and it was what started everything off um, of the Passion Week. So uh, you can ask your parents a little bit more about that later. Uh, the title of my message today is Not Slow, But Burning Hearts. And I would invite you guys to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke. And I'm going to read for you um, two sections from Luke. Kind of uh, a cover-to-cover deal here. I'm going to read you the first first verses in Luke, and I'm going to read you some of the last verses in Luke. We're going to see how they tie together. All right. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now we'll flip to the back of the story. A lot has gone on between these pages. And we'll go to Luke 24, verse 13 to 35, almost to the end of the book. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you so much, especially for Luke's gospel today, as we go to it to be fed by you. Lord, uh, there are so many rich things in here, and the way they connect together uh, is so powerful. And I pray that you would use it today to not only prepare us for a uh, a season of the year of of, uh, humble wonder and adoration of you uh, as we celebrate Easter, But Lord, I also pray that it would be used to to transform us, to transform us more into your image. And I also pray, Lord, uh, that the gospel would do its work today that you have sent it out to do. Lord, uh, give me power and ability to proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of my favorite Easter stories comes soon after the resurrection in Luke's Gospel, the one I just read. And maybe it's one of yours, too. All the anguish and drama of the Passion Week sag heavy on the shoulders of two disappointed disciples on their way to Emmaus. And then, one steady, seemingly unconcerned stranger shocks them with his apparent ignorance of current events. And don't you just love how Jesus says, what things? Well, the two dismayed disciples detail at length the events of the preceding three days. And their report ends with the empty tomb. But they're just as puzzled. There is an exclamation point at the end of the stranger's words as he tells them their hearts are slow to believe. 
They're not just slow. They are slow. But that's not how he leaves them. Because seven verses later, they realize they have been face to face with their risen Lord. And their hearts are burning. Now this provokes some questions for us. What caused the difference in their hearts? And why did Jesus teach Scripture anonymously before he revealed himself face to face? You know, that just doesn't seem the way that we would expect it to be. Uh, he would see them sad in our minds and he'd pop out and say, Voila! <laughs> Here I am. But it's no accident Jesus chose to reveal himself this way. You see, if the disciples would not believe the teaching of Scripture, then what hope was there that they would even believe their own eyes? Yet after they had received scriptural truth, they were given one glimpse of their resurrected Lord. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? They said. Well, God would not have our hearts be slow either this morning. And the question is, how do we get them burning? Luke builds off the foundation he laid in this story, the foundation he laid in his first four verses of his gospel. And I, I really see this connection um, between one of the final stories in Luke's gospel back to the very beginning of the gospel of Luke in that Jesus is anchoring even after he's resurrected and it would seem like he doesn't need to connect any dots anymore. He is continuing to teach scripture and point out that everything he has done has fulfilled the teaching of the Old Testament. But um, this isn't just coming out of nowhere. It's, it's coming off of the very beginning of Luke's Gospel. He writes to Theophilus that his purpose is that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now isn't that similar to John's statement? At the end of John's Gospel in John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. Faith is not only our initial response to God, but our ongoing walk of trust in the Lord built up by the truth of God's Word. But is it possible to have certainty about all of Scripture's teaching? Well, Luke certainly seems to think so. Unbelievers might disagree with this, but sadly, so might too many Christians. And I say too many because even one person purchased by the blood of Christ who dishonors the Lord's character by doubting His words is too many. So my goal in this sermon is to challenge each of you to build up your faith this Easter season by standing firm on the certainty of God's Word. In this way, not only are we going to affirm God's truthful character by showing that we really believe, um, but also put our faith into action by being transformed according 
the renewing of our minds. And so we will glorify God. So I see three questions here that arise from this whole question of certainty, which isn't that a powerful, powerful controversy in our time as it has ever been since in the Garden of Eden, the snake said, did God really say? Um, why can we have certainty? Number two, why is certainty important? And number three, what does it look like to have it? So let's talk about the first one. Why can we have certainty about God's word? And what is Luke's answer? Well, one word in verse 2 goes a long way. Uh, that word is eyewitness. Well, um, we can have certainty because there are eyewitnesses of these things. But what are they eyewitnesses of? Verse 1, the things that have been accomplished among us. Okay, so there's two components to that. Uh, the first thing is that um, certain things have happened before the eyes of witnesses who can say, hey, I was there, man. And the second thing is there was a, these things were foretold. They were accomplished. They knew they were going to happen, but hey, we've seen them. We can say, we can sign off on these and say, yeah, they really happened. So there's two parts to that. Verse 2 also points to an ongoing process that Luke continues for Theophilus and us, which is the transmission of God's record. So I think that's pretty amazing that what we see here is this continuation of something that started with the prophets, and that is the prophets said, hey, these are things God wants you to know are going to happen. Maybe they aren't for you, but they're for a future generation. Then those things happened. Then the eyewitnesses saw them. Then Luke gathered the information. And then he became scripture. And now I'm sharing it with you this morning. So it's, and as you share these stories, you will continue that transmission process of eyewitness. So let's, let's slow it down just a little bit more and we're going to see how powerful this process really is. First of all, God does something. Second of all, eyewitnesses see it. And third, their witness is passed on, ultimately becoming embodied in Scripture. In other words, when you hear or read Scripture, it's the equivalent of hearing an eyewitness give their testimony. Now, in a court of law, once a witness is sworn in, their testimony must be presumed true and compelling. Isn't that right? Once you take that stand, you are assumed to be telling the truth, and a prosecutor can cross-examine you and try to show inconsistencies, but as long as your witness is consistent, what you say has to be presumed true. Unless, of course, the prosecutor can demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that their witness is not consistent. Obviously, then, the greater the number of witnesses who are consistent with each other, well, the more compelling their witness must be found. So, a prosecutor can try to poke holes in one person's story, try to confuse them, try to muddle them, but when you have 500 people who all saw the same thing, that's pretty difficult to argue with. In the same way, Luke in 1-2 uh, points to many eyewitnesses 
as does Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 18, and John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So we see this theme throughout the New Testament of eyewitness as a powerful, compelling uh, demand for belief. So according to legal standards, Luke's message is reliable, supported by eyewitnesses. But what do they witness to? To wit, the things that have been accomplished among us. And as I mentioned before, this points not only to actions God has completed, but which also have been authenticated by being foretold in the Old Testament. And so these prophesied events then became a matter of historical record as much as Pearl Harbor or the Gettysburg Address. Uh, It's just there. They happen. They're real. But God does not rely only on eyewitnesses, does He? He sets His seal on specific ones so that for us to believe their witness is to believe His witness. Think about it. Luke says right here at the beginning of his Gospel, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. In other words, there were lots of, uh, lots of narratives floating around in, uh, when Theophilus was reading. And Luke was like, hey, lots of people have done this, but I'm going to do this because um, I know the story and, and I want you to, to know that you can have certainty about it. And yet, there are only four authoritative Gospels and Scriptures canon. So many people were writing accounts of what had happened, but there's only four authoritative Gospels. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 plus were eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. And yet, if these people had written down their first-hand accounts, they certainly would have been found true and compelling. They were true. They would have been demands to believe, and yet they would not have been Scripture. So what can we learn from that? Well, God selected certain writers to record their, these eyewitnesses in His Word, and these books became part of the Bible consistent with and fulfilling the Old Testament. And this brings us to the heart of the matter. Scripture is God's eyewitness. We should believe in the certainty of Scripture's teaching regarding anything it touches because it is God's Word backed by His omniscience and integrity. That is, the fact that He knows everything and He cannot lie. As Paul writes in Romans 3.4, Let God be true and every man a liar. What this means is that when sinful, imperfect, and limited human perception disagrees with God's Word, it's to be disregarded. And it also means that God's Word is enough to compel and demand our obedient belief. Now some Christians struggle with this apparent circular reasoning. I'm supposed to believe the Bible because the Bible tells me to? They might say. Well, they might prefer an appeal to authority. Surely then, uh, the reasoning would not be circular, they would think. But what happens when you appeal to some other authority? Well, an appeal to authority is always an appeal to a higher authority. You never appeal to a lower authority. Uh, And so, 
in a legal court, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't say, hey, there was this one small-time judge uh, out in the boonies, and he said this, so we're going with that. Um, you, in the same way, um, an appeal to authority in, with history or science or, or archaeology, if you put any of those things as your proof of the authority of Scripture, you're actually putting the authority in the hands of what you're appealing to. You're saying that archaeology or science or history is actually the highest authority. And so in the unique, there is a unique case of God's Word in which you have to, the seat of authority has to stop somewhere. Just like nothing, uh, something can't come from nothing, authority has to have a beginning point. It can't just, um, it, 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 the buck has to stop somewhere. And so in the case of God's Word, God's Word has authority because God says it does. Um, it is a reflection of His character. And we can trust it because we can trust His character. He cannot lie and He knows everything. So true outside witnesses often confirm it. And that is true. And that can certainly help us um, as we are sharing the gospel with people and as we are um, studying scripture. But they do not confer authority upon it. In fact, there was a recent example of a situation just like this. Um, as ISIS has been pushed back out of Mosul, praise the Lord, um, they found that uh, the uh, people who uh, were part of ISIS had been digging in the archaeological uh, ruins looking for uh, treasures to sell on the black market. And uh, archaeologists before ISIS had taken over Mosul, which is ancient Nineveh, had found these areas that they were like, we don't even know if we can go in there because we don't, we're going to wreck anything if we go in there. You know, it's kind of like a catch-22. If we go in to dig, we're just going to obliterate whatever we find. But then once ISIS had dug in there, they were like, well, I mean, it's basically already wrecked, so we might as well go in and see if we find anything. And what they found was uh, a number of confirmations of the kings, uh, the Assyrian kings, listed uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so, um, yet again, here is outside confirmation of the historicity of the Bible. And yet, this did not add to the Bible's authority. It merely echoed it. Inside, um, and so, Scripture doesn't require these proofs of outside witnesses. It really doesn't. But it does, however, provide an internal witness. That is, you know when God is talking to you. And so if we go back to that first chapter of Luke, Luke gives us a perfect example of this right away um, in the story of uh, Zechariah, the story of Mary. Let me ask you a question. From your knowledge of Scripture, how do people react when they encounter an angel. You know, it's no coincidence that every time um, 
somebody meets an angel in scripture, the angel has to say, don't be afraid. <laughs> hey man, don't freak out. You know, I'm just here with a message for you. Um, the angel always, and, and these are just mere messengers from God, aren't they? Um, when Isaiah receives his, his uh, commission to be a prophet directly from God in Isaiah 6, he says, woe is me, I am undone. You know, basically like, I should be dead right now. You know, I've seen the Lord, you know, it's all over. Um, you know when God is talking to you, even when it's just a mere messenger from God, just an angel. And they don't have to persuade their hearers of their credentials. You know, they don't have to show a badge or anything. In the same way, when God's word convicts or edifies us, even if we are resistant to the message, we know God is talking to us, don't we? Even if we don't want to hear it, like the prophet Jonah, we know that God is talking to us, and we know we should be doing what he says. So ultimately, we can have certainty regarding Scripture's teaching because we know it is God's Word. If you believe it, you do well, and God will reward you. And not the least among that reward is the fact that as you trust His Word, especially in areas where you're, you're genuinely tested to trust it, Maybe you would really like to be able to point to uh, a book and say, see, here's proof that what the Bible is talking about is real, but that book just doesn't exist. Maybe you would just really, you know, you're in a tight spot in life because, you know, you just didn't expect things to go this way. And yet you know that, that God loves you and that he's working all things for your good. And maybe you're asking, but Lord, how is this working for my good? All the time, we are put in situations where we would just really not like our faith to be tested and therefore grow. And yet, um, that's exactly where, when we trust, our understanding of the Lord and His love for us and, and our knowledge of Scripture will grow. And we will become more attentive to hearing God. Uh, I... I'm reminded of a friend of mine, John Kroll, and he's um, a really neat guy who is in his 80s, um, high 80s, in, uh, out in Long Prairie, Minnesota. And one of the things that's so cool about him is that uh, he, his entire life growing up on a farm has just been fascinated by wildlife. And he's had the opportunity to see wildlife firsthand his whole life. And uh, I went out with him one, one day and uh, riding in the car and we were going to do some bird watching. And he had the window rolled down and he heard the sound. And he was like, oh, it's this bird. Like, what? Even in his 80s, his ears were so attuned that he could know what a bird was just by hearing its call. And in the same way... Um, the more we listen to God, the more we will know that when God is talking to us. But if you choose not to, you will find yourself face to face with the Lord Jesus at his judgment seat. 
explaining why you called his father a liar by refusing to believe. Please understand that even those of us who have been saved from God's wrath will still have to account for every errant thought, word, and deed done in the flesh. And as we think of some of the things that you know, we, we no longer can control, we, um, because they're in the past, we experience genuine repentance for those. Christ covers these sins with his blood. But knowing that he knows and that you'll have to face him, you'll have to look him in the eye, can you imagine defying him? And I, I think we all can think of things that we, um, situations where we've been kept from sin as we've thought about the fact that, oh man, I sure wouldn't want to face this person after that uh, if I did that. In the same way, we can be kept from sin by the knowledge that we will give an account of our lives to, to Christ. Not because, not because, um, we're trying to earn our salvation or anything, but simply because um, we will have to give an account and um, we won't lose our salvation because of our sins, but we are being given extra motivation to live lives that are well-pleasing to Christ. And, um, and that is a real gift. Um, it, what it does is it keeps Christ closer in our heart and in our mind in the moment. Um, and so this is why Christ teaches that of those who have been given much, much will be expected. You see, when we receive instruction from God's Word, we're accountable for what we do with it. It's not just a neutral thing where we can take it or leave it. Um, when we have been given extra access to God's Word, what we do with it, what we, how we teach it, how we pass it on, um, we're, we're at a higher level at that point. Now, this doesn't need, mean that we need to freak out um, or be afraid of it, because if we take God's word to heart and obey, we're going to bear much fruit and have a reward that we can look forward to. So really, this is a really positive thing. We don't have to be afraid of this responsibility. Um, but it, what it does mean is that we are accountable to God for our beliefs and um, for um, how they conform to Scripture. So as we eyeball our second question, why is certainty important? We already have the groundwork laid for the answer. You should be motivated by the knowledge of your certain future accountability to take it to heart. But, you know, we all maybe know people like this, dear brothers and sisters who are like, you know, I just, you know, I'm just fine as a Christian without having to believe that. Or, you know, I just don't, you know, just give me Jesus, man, you know. And, you know, as if, you know, somehow, you know, the Bible is just peripheral to, <laughs> it's just somehow peripheral to the Christian life, you know. Um, and understanding, you know, God's word is just somehow a sidebar issue. Um, <laughs> um, 
And so I want to kind of approach that because we do know people like that and maybe even we are people like that in some ways. And so I want to approach it from a different angle because we already know that we're accountable to God for, for what we do with Scripture. But Paul approaches this same question from another angle in 1 Corinthians 15. And he was responding to those who said that, you know, you don't have to be a Christian and believe that there's a resurrection. And these were people inside the church. And it's as hard as it is to imagine, there were people in that first century who were facing persecution, perhaps, um, and yet they were like, you know, we just, we just don't need to believe that. Um, and Paul was writing to these people. And, and he had a lot to say, and we're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to ask you this. Did that sort of thing cease in Paul's day? Um, don't people still do that and take their mental scissors to their Bibles whenever they find anything inconvenient to their lifestyle or they feel embarrassed by a particular teaching? Um, because they wouldn't want their friends to know that they believe something. Pay attention to how Paul responds, because it's the same answer for us, and we're tempted to say, I can get along fine as a Christian without believing that. Now, if you took away the offending doctrine of the resurrection, Paul says, you took away the gospel, which is salvation, because what you are really taking away is Christ's resurrection. If Christ never resurrected, well, then that payment for our sins never went through. Because that's what the resurrection is. It's uh, the proof that Christ's payment for our sins was accepted. It was the receipt, in a way, uh, that, boom, yes, the payment went through. Some of you have done your taxes, and maybe you got an email this week that said, your tax return has been accepted. And you're like, yes. Now I don't have to worry about that for another year. Well, that is really what the people who um, were denied the resurrection were, were doing. They were log if they were going to be logically consistent, then they were still in their sins and their faith was futile. And they were still under the wrath of God. And no better off for calling themselves Christians than they had been before. The scriptures are so seamlessly woven together that to, to dismember one doctrine is to kill the whole. And so often we as Christians want so badly to be taken seriously by worldly people, don't we? We want to be thought of as very serious. And, uh, you know, people who should be taken seriously. And so in a desire to save face for an inconsistent secular idea that flatly contradicts scripture... Uh, we can make our thinking inconsistent and imperil our faith. Um, and so, for example, when um, in the whole history of interpretation before the 1860s, um, you basically had uh, two options. You had uh, the option that uh, Genesis um, 1 was literal or you had the option that it was allegorical. 
um, but you never had some sort of quasi option that, um, oh well, you know, uh, between verses one and two, there's really a gap of several million years. And, um, you know, it's just so obvious there in the text. Um, and so people, in order to try to save face for these secular ideas that were just non-starters and to appear as serious in the eyes of the people they wanted to impress, twisted the scriptures. And what they really did was they said, God couldn't make a world without there being sin and death before the Garden of Eden. Um, because if you have evolution, um, you have to have a process of killing and uh, dying and um, winners and losers. And uh, you did not have a very good creation that then fell. You had a, a fallen creation that somehow was propped up and then there was a, another fall. So it just gets, it, you just see what happens when, when people try to add stuff to Scripture. It just gets really weird. Um, so to be clear, this doesn't mean we will lose our salvation if we err in biblical doctrine. But that doesn't mean there are no negative consequences. As I've said before, not only will all of us be held accountable for our errors, but also for the wrong living that inevitably accompanies bad teaching. And the dishonor that we bring to God by saying with our lives that we know better than Him. But it doesn't end there. Because our cool, confident disobedience is almost certain to have brought confusion to someone whose conscience is vulnerable and whose faith is weak. And we hurt them. And we'll be held accountable for that too. So we must throw ourselves humbly before God in prayer, asking that He help us be faithful to His teaching and that His Spirit transform us, renewing our minds and so strengthen us to obey. I thought it was good as I, as I went through here to say that there are things that, that you know, Scripture considers you know, to be tertiary. That you know, Not everything is a matter of crucial doctrine, but yet you'll find that most of the things that there's controversies over in belief are the really important things. It wouldn't be controversial if it wasn't important. And so these major things like the creation and the fall and man made in the image of God and um, the truthfulness of Scripture, the certainty of its teaching, almost everything that is worth living and dying for is, um, is so important for us to hold on to. Perhaps it will help us to remember that God has a purpose for everything in Scripture and it all goes to support Scripture's great message, the Gospel. Think of Scripture as a thick sweater knit from one single continuous skein of yarn, okay? And it's a cold day. And um, you're walking through town in your warm sweater and someone, you start talking with somebody and they start looking at your sweater and they say, oh, this loop here. I'm just going to pull this out. I don't like that loop. And so they snip it with a, a little uh, pocket knife. 
They think that your sweater is starting to look good. But what's really happening is that as you continue that walk through town and people start seeing those unsightly ends sticking out of your sweater and they keep snipping them away, well, pretty soon you're standing out in the cold. And in the same way, the Bible is not 66 books, but one book with 66 chapters. What it says about creation, the making of man in God's image as a special creation, and the fall, all are central to the same thread that leads us to understand ourselves as fallen people, estranged from our Creator, desperately in need of the sinless Son of God, who has become a human being in order to take away our sins and God's anger at them, risen again to show that His sacrifice has been accepted. And so the Gospel is really what holds all of Scripture together. Why is it important that Genesis is understood literally? Well, because if we don't understand ourselves as made in the image of God and originally very good and originally um, without sin, and then there was a real fall, then we don't understand why Jesus had to come and die. If we don't understand... um, the virgin birth, for example, if we, if we let go of that, well, what do we let go of? We let go of the fact that Jesus is in this mystery, both God and man at the same time. And so the gospel is this fact that we have to keep going back and using to check our understanding of the rest of God's word against. And um, because we, uh, we need the gospel in order to live. Ultimately, God wants you to place your faith in His Son to be your Savior so that you will enjoy eternal life with Him forever. And that is good news. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to give a new birth to us as sinners so that we can believe. And praise God for that. Now this leads us to our final question, so bear with me, kids. The practical angle. What does it look like to have certainty? Well, Luke gives us two contrasting examples in this first chapter. So, kids, pay attention because these are stories. I know that you'll like these. So, uh, Zechariah is serving God in the temple when the archangel Gabriel appears with a very special message. Now, it's really cool because Gabriel is the one who, in uh, the book of Daniel, has given Daniel these visions of the future. And um, so now here he appears again in Scripture, and it's just so cool to see these continuities um, because it's really one big story. You know, like forget, uh, you know, it's bigger than Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, it's, it's just way bigger and way more involved because it's the universe. Um, So, Zechariah is serving God in the temple when the archangel Gabriel appears with a very special message. And he has spent his whole life as a priest, and he's in the temple, and it's, uh, we're told that uh, all of these people are praying outside, and you kind of get the sense, it's a very kind of a, a very beautiful, but kind of a, kind of a moment of expectation. It almost feels like something's about to happen as you read the story. Well, 
Back at home, he has this wife named Elizabeth, and she is now past her childbearing years. And um, perhaps, you know, maybe somewhere in the back of his mind, um, or before he got on his shift as a priest, he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to go home to Elizabeth here pretty soon. <clears throat> well, um, he's had this routine down for years. He's an older man. And all of a sudden, the routine just comes to a screeching halt because there's an angel in the temple. And he was never expecting, well, maybe he wasn't, but he certainly wasn't that day expecting an angel to appear. And he tells uh, Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And that son is going to grow up to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, when you know that Zechariah here is a priest, he really should know his scriptures. You know, and he should know the story of Abraham and Sarah. He should know, you know, the book of Daniel. Um, so he should know who Gabriel is. Um, how does he as a lifelong priest respond? Well, he says, you know, paraphrasing here, you know, the message version, are you sure? <laughs> Wait, do you have the right Zechariah? Uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of us. Um, he, <laughs> he questions Gabriel's message because it just doesn't add up to him. Um, because what was going on for Zechariah is what happens for all of us at different times. We put our own understanding of what is possible as a filter over God's Word. And that's a very selective filter, and it's very, uh, very dependent on our own subjectivity. Consequently, he wasn't able to say a word until his son was born, because his silence underscored the fact that he had been deaf to God's voice. He just wasn't listening. Now that's an example of what certainty isn't. Okay, So that, don't do it like that. But then there was Mary. But of, of course we see here hope for us because even though Zechariah really, really, bought, you know, really miffed it, God was still gracious to him. And um, he still did exactly what he had promised to do. But then there was Mary, okay? Now, compared to Zechariah's announcement, she was told something that must have seemed practically impossible, okay? Because there were parallels in Scripture for Zechariah. He could look back and say, oh yeah, well, there was Abraham and Sarah, and, and um, you know, there's lots of stories, actually, where if you think about it, the same thing that he said was going to happen had happened. So, you know, God had done this before. But with Mary, this was a brand new ball game. This had just never happened before. Gabriel told her she would bear God's son, to be named Jesus, who would be the Messiah. But Mary was a virgin. Uh, she asked, a and I'm tempted here to say, ask your parents at home, kids, what that means. Um, she asked a clarifying question. Perhaps because there was no parallel to this before, maybe her question reflected not doubt, but honest curiosity. Because there was just no parallel to this in Scripture, other than, of course, the prophecy in Isaiah um, that a virgin would bear a son. 
Uh, listen to the angel's reply that should satisfy us too. Nothing will be impossible with God. And it's just that short and sweet um, in the words of Gabriel. Nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary replied, let it be to me according to your word. Man, that is something to learn from. We can learn so much from Mary. She was a nobody from Nazareth, but like Abraham, she did not stagger in unbelief at God's promise. I just love how Hebrews puts that because you get the idea of carrying a really heavy load. So heavy, you think you're going to fall over. Okay, now God's promises are big. They're huge. I mean, and yet she carried this huge promise with confidence. She didn't fall over and trip. Um, oftentimes, um, God's promises seem to potentially stagger us, not because they... Uh, not because they seem um, too far-fetched, but too good to be true. That God would actually do something that amazing and that wonderful for us. And yet here is Mary as a complete nobody who receives God's promise and believes. And it's the same thing for us. We need to believe these promises that if it were anybody but God, would be too good to be true. So as we follow the single continuous thread of God's salvation message through Scripture, let's put God's character as a filter on our understanding (coughs) and not the other way around. You see, there's no shame in asking questions for deeper understanding, provided we begin by having perfect trust in His character and therefore His Word. We should expect to snag on passages here on there. We should expect to have moments of testing. Why? Well, because we know that we have a sin nature inside of us. And that sin nature's inclination is to resist God's word. And its inclination is to prefer vain philosophy. It doesn't like the taste of God's word. But if we let that inclination have its head, we will soon be riddled with doubts. And if, but if we first resolved to believe God's word as a manifestation of his character, then we will find that faith will help us. And it's almost like being in the ocean. And maybe you're, um, maybe you're boogie boarding or something. You're out in the waves. Maybe you've gotten a little too far out um, uh, past where you can touch. And uh, you're just kind of like, ah, this is a little dicey here. And there's this huge wave that's about to come over your head. Well, you know, maybe that wave would sink you, but faith is like that boogie board that it just gives you just enough flotation to help you crest it, to just ride over the top of it so that in the trough on the other side, you can breathe and kind of get your bearings and kind of go back into shore. And like for Mary, faith will help us in those moments where we, d- we just don't have anything other than the fact that God said it to back it up. But like for Mary, those pieces will fall into place. And on the other side, they will be presented to our mind as a whole and answered question. Understanding does not lead to faith either. Um, because faith is a trust in God's personal character. And I was watching 
um, a Jordan Peterson video recently where um, this guy just asked him point blank, are you a Christian? And he said, well, yes. And he was like, okay, but do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And he just stopped and you just see the wheels spinning in his head. And basically when you boiled his answer down, it was like, well, I'm not saying that I don't think it could have happened because there's just a lot that we don't understand, but I just really want to be able to understand more before I would say yes. And that, that's kind of where all of fallen human nature is. We want to put understanding before faith. But it's really because we don't understand what faith is. It's not, faith is not the result of understanding. It's, it's actually a personal trust in God's character. We will never ha- know all that God knows. We will never know God like God knows God. We will never, we will never know everything perfectly like God. And so our understanding is an impossible prerequisite. Certainly, full understanding is. It's a, a full, um, full understanding. It's just an impossible prerequisite for faith. However, all the time we find that faith leads to understanding. Someone digs up evidence of a king all the experts said didn't exist because they knew the Bible was true and they wouldn't be wasting their time to look for it. Hypothetical example there. But the real reward is not knowledge, but the delightful discovery that as you and I trust in God, our trust will grow and we will deepen in our love and knowledge of Him. And that love will go out into the world around us. And like Mary, may your trust in God's character give you certainty that will result in great glory to God, great fruitfulness in your life, and great encouragement to the faith of your brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much because you know us so well. You know that we are but dust and you have compassion on us. You, you know that we're sinners and you provide a Savior for us. Um, even think of how you know how weak we are. And throughout the Bible, we see uh, people like Gideon putting out a fleece or Thomas wanting to put his hands into Christ's side. And yet, Lord, you're so compassionate that you, you meet us uh, in our weakness. We, we just thank you so much for the amazing love that we're so unworthy of and so uh, unmerited. And yet, it's no less real because it's the... It just comes from who you are. And you are eternal, Lord. We just love you and we're in awe of you and we pray that your word would keep us from sin. We pray that it would encourage us today. Um, We pray that it would help us to be able to teach others. uh, And we pray that it would just make our our faith, uh, give our faith a, a shot in the arm, Lord. We just thank you so much for um, walking with us through uh, the season of winter and taking care of us, helping us in so many situations. And Lord, as the the weather gets nicer here, we thank you for that too. And um, thank you for how you've looked out for us. 
God, <coughs> thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And thank you for your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.